to thank you for this consult. Um, today, we will be talking about sex. Woohoo! <laughs> um, this is, you know, it's a series um, that goes along with kind of everything else that we're doing. Okay. Whenever I say series, Siri pops up. There she goes again. No, this is a bad joke. All right. All right. So uh, this was a lot of fun to learn about and kind of climb down rabbit holes. And, you know, I'm just looking at my notes and they read like a verse from We Didn't Start the Fire because it's mostly just looking at the history and different things like that. So first I'm going to talk about the first accounts of sex that we have and what we believe sexual relationships were like uh, years ago in ancient times. And then I'm going to do a lot on modern day. Um, And when I say modern day, I mean from like the turn of the century. And then talk about kind of um, polygamy and polyamory and, you know, kind of open the door to question, you know, why monogamy? Um, So that being said, um, these are kind of all just facts. I am not promoting one, one or another, you know, these, (laughs) I'm just laying it out there. Um, It's, it's interesting. Okay, so let's start with um, our primate ancestors. So, you know, we, are pretty sure just looking at, um, you know, looking at our closest primate relatives that, you know, they didn't have couples. They believe that they, our brains developed emotions like love and that led to monogamy. And it really was a kind of a sign of what was going on. If, if, being in a couple or having multiple partners was just a better fit for that particular um, culture or tribe, then, you know, they would kind of, it, it's all about, like I said in the last episode, survival and what makes the most sense for everybody. And then when you move into the farming, the agricultural revolution, um, paternity and the male partner kind of became a taking possession of the family and the children And um, in some ways, in some cultures, this kind of immobilized women because they were in the home raising the children and the men were out. So that could also be part of, um, you know, emotion aside, that could be part of what happened. And a, um, I believe he's a psychiatrist, um, Philip, Felipe uh, Bruno, he wrote, um, it's, it's a really interesting uh, I think it's called the a graphic history of sex, and he argues that it's not learned. Um, sorry, that it that monogamy versus um, polygamy is learned, and it's not genetic. So um, he puts an emphasis on kind of sex education and what people are learning and what they witness from their parents and kind of pass it on. However, there are a lot of evolution like people who study evolution and ecology that believe that it is genetic um based on different animals you know how to how to species know what to do so it's it's interesting so essentially and i'm gonna try to shout out some of these sources as i go um so this next these next couple um 
go through kind of the basic when you when you talk about history you start with ancient rome then you go to the middle ages so we're going to do that a little bit so um in ancient rome was kind of a crazy time um (laughs) (laughs) and i don't know i'm trying to remember back i don't know certainly not your education (laughs) wouldn't have covered this at all but i'm trying to remember how when we learned about this if they kind of hinted at things because sex was a big part of history back in ancient Rome and ancient Greece and ancient Egypt. Um, It was political and a lot of it had to do uh, with raising boys to join the army. So you want to have a lot of children in hopes that you have a lot of boys. Girls are worthless, but the boys can join (laughs) the army and, you know, fight for the state. So it was, (laughs) that's kind of the you know, family unit. And um, in ancient Rome, it was very, it was very centered around pleasure, but only for the men. Um, And not during sex with the wife, but that's why prostitutes were there. So um, when you have sex with your wife, yep, it's for procreation only, but um, you could even, you could... (laughs) You could have a prostitute, or if you were an elite man, it was okay to receive a sexual act from another man, but the man who was receiving it, they were not stigmatized. So it's just, we, you know, we do see... Um, wait, wait, so I want to clarify that. For, yes. So for the wealthy men, they would receive sexual acts from other men, or they would be the giver of the sexual acts from other men? So... <clears throat> the pitcher versus catcher baby right okay so the person performing it, it's similar to prostitution the person okay. performing the act was kind of stigmatized and looked down upon <laughs> versus the person receiving the act i'm sorry it was a bad visual but the person receiving the act it was kind of elite and he could afford it and you know um it was and this like is that. if we're considering both oral and anal yes yeah okay so the receiver is elite in both situations interesting yes okay i had to clarify because you know that doesn't really line up with the how those things would be viewed in our culture right now this is what None of this is consistent (laughs) with what we review in our culture. Well, that's why I had to clarify. (laughs) Um, But also, you know, there are accounts of like these big sex shows or these parties. And that to me kind of means maybe they had nothing better to do than, um, you know, this was their form of entertainment per se. And it was like taboo and... But then you kind of get into like some not so cool parts of it, like incest, rape, bestiality, castration. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was a kind of a double edged sword because there was a lot of punishment and exile if the wrong type of person was enjoying sex. You know, it was just very, you know, you be starved or banished or, you know. It was not, you know, obviously it was very political and very one-sided. So also, I don't know if you 
again, I'm sure nobody learned about this in school, but um, oral sex was a big part of ancient Egyptian culture. And um, it said, and I got this from both a bustle.com or uh, article seven per, per seven surprising sex trends throughout history and also <laughs> historyextra.com in bed with the Romans. <laughs> so um, they think that the Egyptians invented lipstick as a way to symbolize that one was um, a frequent participator in oral sex. It was kind oh. of like the sign. Yeah. Oh. And the legend or the myth goes that Osiris, um, an Egyptian, I guess he was a god, was brought back to life by a blowjob. Oh. So I have to ask, was it just oral sex where men were receiving it or were women included as well? That is a good question. I don't know. But I do know that Cleopatra was said to be very, like, openly sexual. So I have to kind of, I hope, but, <laughs> you know, that's a great question. That they were progressive enough for it to go both ways? I like to think so. I, oh boy. So, <laughs> so now moving on to the Middle Ages. So the Middle Ages was kind of a very weird time um, for sex because the church kind of governed Ugh. who, Ugh. with whom, when. Um, there were these like blackout dates that you could not have sex, like Lent and feasts of saints and Sundays. So right and now, Thursday and Friday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's Lent. Everyone right. keep it in your pants. Exactly. So um, you know there was this focus on. You know, it was kind of like mysterious, like, you know, they it was a focus on looking like at people's eyes and people would write letters to um, loved ones because they, you know, didn't marry for love, obviously. So there were all these extramarital kind of like emotional cheating situations. So, um, I mean, it was very, you know, church based and based on again, the family structure and having kids to take care of the farm. And that's really it. So that, uh, the Puritans, I actually thought was very, very interesting. So the Puritans (laughs) came over to escape this essentially. So they opposed the church of England and they came to America and, you know, that's part of the reason why they left. So, you know, PDA was still legal, um, and the church was still the most important thing, but um, there is a part of, I guess their, you know, their Bible, I don't, I guess they had a separate Bible, but there was something called, like, due benevolence, and this is to please the wife. It's your, it's your duty as a husband to please your wife. So I was surprised to learn that, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hmm. And they say that, and I actually saw this um, stat like all over. Um, the first place I saw it was medievalists.net, but I also saw it on the history of sex on the History Channel. Um, a third of Puritan brides were pregnant on their wedding day. So I, I kind of, I like that because it meant yeah. that people were in love and they were sneaking around. Like it's, you know, obviously 
unplanned pregnancies, you know, that's part of it. But also it kind of, there's passion, you know, I, I, I thought that it means be- that things weren't so bad that people were scared out of experimenting. Like, you know, right. the religious religious texts that they were taught from might have said to do things a certain way, but culturally it wasn't horrible enough that people were, that some people were still, you know, like, well, I know I'm going to be okay, like whatever happens. So, yeah. And, um, what I, in, so I guess north of Plymouth, there was a even kind of more radical man named Thomas Morton. And he, he was a pagan, I believe. So he came and brought his followers and they were just, I forget the name of the town. I want to say Marymount, uh, Massachusetts. And they had these like festivals and these sacrifices and the maypole was actually thought to be part of their practices. And the maypole represents a phallic symbol, which I thought maybe was the first iteration of a strip pole, a stripper pole. Ooh. That's my own thought that I felt like interjecting. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's skip a bunch of years because I feel like it. And um, <laughs> let's talk about the Victorian era. And um, I just want to make sure all I'll say about this is that for one, um, and I, I'd love for you to tell me if this is a myth or not, because I've seen it in multiple places as well, um, that orgasms were treatment for huge air quotes, hysteria in women. Yeah, it's true. It mm-hmm. is. Yeah. But that was like the, I think that was the Freudian era. Was, that was that the, would have been like 1900-ish. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it I guess it could be yeah, late eighteen hundreds too, but yes. I have heard that and it's not a myth. I'm pretty sure we're like it's part of like what you learn with psychiatry, psychology stuff. So, um, what's up with that? I don't know. <laughs> it was probably like some pervy doctor started it. And maybe back then, you know, the women really weren't having a lot of orgasms and could benefit from it. It's a known anti-anxiety anxiolytic I think is the yeah. term I'm looking yeah. for so I mean they there there was a you know some science behind it but I'm pretty sure it was probably just like a pervy doctor who wanted to do things to women but also but maybe maybe it was beneficial maybe it was right. positive and for both for, parties good for women I've got to assume there was I'm gonna hope there was informed consent but yeah, you know, maybe that was if that's like the first orgasm a woman ever had, and you know, it liberates or good for yeah. I don't know. It's just, it could go you know. either way, but there's a chance it, it was positive. There's a chance it was negative. Who knows? But like, at at least something was being acknowledged. Yeah. So that's interesting. Okay, so I, I hope you're all learning that I have no concept. I'm not a history major by any means so I'm just naming eras all willy-nilly like (laughs) that was the Victorian era and for the purpose of this the purpose of this podcast it came before the 1900s because here we are in the 1900s and (laughs) you have a rise of cities and men are kind of flocking to these cities for finance reasons and you have prostitutions wherever it's like 
osmosis, you know, wherever there's salt, <laughs> you have water, wherever there's sodium, water comes, wherever there's large groups of men, just like the gold rush. Oh, I can say the gold rush was in the 1840s. Ooh. So everyone's going out west and women really made, you know, a lot of money, um, so much so that they had businesses and stakes in the railroad um, from uh, prostitution and shows and these like inns that they had. So that was in 18. 18- Honestly, if you lived back then, being a prostitute was probably the most liberating career choice there was. Like, either you're going to be married to someone and, like, take care of, like, 11 children if you don't die in childbirth and, like, want to kill yourself daily, or you could be a prostitute and be rich. Yeah. Um, There was an empress, Theodora, that was a prostitute. She started out as a prostitute and then became... Oh, God. The Empress of the Byzantine Empire, I want to say. She just made a career choice. She's like, well, I'm, I don't want to do this. And then she got into, like, wool weaving, and then she made some good connections. It's the it's history's oldest profession. Um, yeah. But we can't talk about the history of sex without talking about that. So... In the early, brings us to the early 1900s. I'm so, I'm so proud of myself that I actually established a correct date. And it's mm-hmm. only because of the San Francisco 49ers that I, I know that date. Mm-hmm. So um, in the early 1900s, picture those like big bikes, you know, with the big front wheel and like the tiny person like sitting yeah. on top. So they thought that bike riding um, was hazardous to women because it could lead to either stimulation or injury to their organs. Ooh. So that's kind of setting the tone with how little um, was kind of known about women's anatomy or really just any common sense. I mean, sense. if that's going to hurt you, how can you have sex? <laughs> like, that makes zero sense. So now I'm going to have like these two warring people. So at one end, we have Anthony Comstock and Essentially, he made it illegal, and this is kind of right around World War One-ish, pre-World War One. He made it illegal to send or receive obscene materials through the U.S. mail. So oh, he fuck him. was, yeah, he was very anti-masturbation, anti-pleasure. That's just him. And then on the other end of it, we have the rise of Margaret Sanger and her crusade, which eventually leads to birth control. And 40 mm-hmm. years later, it took her. God bless That him. guy sounds like he couldn't get laid, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if he's not having fun, no one has fun. So um, we have these two kind of warring people, I think, in the in, And I think it, it's just really interesting. So um, so now we're in World War One, And here we have um, venereal diseases. Um and <clears throat> this kind of made, quote unquote, loose women the bad guys because they were, you know, venereal diseases ended up in losing 7 million man days due to, um, yeah, I don't know, they couldn't work or they had to get treatment or whatever. So now you have all these U.S. soldiers in Europe where cult- the culture may be a little different. So, you know, they're experimenting and, you know, when they're not on duty, 
And I think part of this stems from the fact that they also made in the U.S. they closed brothels anywhere near a military base. So they kind of deprived the soldiers of sex and then kind of sent them overseas. And then they came. Wait, so this all goes back to capitalism. They needed to take full advantage of the soldiers and the soldiers were getting STDs and they didn't want them to get STDs because then they couldn't do as much soldiering. So they made sex like a bad thing yeah okay (laughs) are you surprised no i'm not (laughs) okay so and then they came back and then the roaring 20s happened and they're kind of this sounds so bad they're sharing what they learned with their girlfriends and wives back at home um so they're you know this is a period of Uh, taking control of one's own sexuality and opulence and, you know, extravagance. We have uh, bohemian culture. And because there was the prohibition and you had your speakeasies and, you know, ways to get alcohol, everything kind of was always underground and, you know, like kind of like a, you know, an inadvertent counterculture because everything had to be so hush hush. So, you know, also you had the rise of movies and, you know, kissing scenes that were seven seconds long and, you know, (laughs) innuendos. (laughs) Um, But in this time, we'll go back to our friend Margaret Sanger, was also starting to normalize contraception. So where you have a rise in indulgence in the sexual manner, you also have options. So Yeah, so what what was she promoting as birth control in that time period? So at this time it would have been diaphragms um mm-hmm. which oh don't quote me. I want to say diaphragms came before condoms, but they were pretty much at the same time. Um but yeah, and like sponges and things like she just wanted anything to avoid you know, unsafe abortions. So back then, did they know anything about like tracking your cycle or like pulling out? I mean, cause that doesn't even require anything. I, they had to have, um, yeah, but I mean, that, that's a lot of, that's a lot of faith, putting a lot of faith into, well, you know, young people, drunk people. <laughs> Yeah, well, people nowadays, I mean, this stuff is all very well, very well known, but people are still too stupid to comprehend it. So and going back to that, think about what the education was like. No, like mothers are, you know, you're you have Victorian era mothers teaching these young girls in the 20s, in their 20s, probably all these you know, wives' tales and, you know, just don't get pregnant or don't have sex, you'll get pregnant and die. Kind of this, like, fear-mongering because nobody was bothering to study women's health as much as they were men's health. And, you know, abstinence was the only thing that was taught, I'm sure. So now this brings us to the Depression, which obviously came after the Roaring Twenties. And with the Depression came decreased marriage rates, decreased birth rates because people couldn't afford, you know, a lot of children. And there were high divorce rates, a lot of abandonment. Very sad. Um, So, you know, it was kind of a lull. But the, you know, that wasn't too long, um, you know, lived because then... um, World War II happened. And with World War II, um, 
you know, you had this kind of shift from, of, in a good way, from the way that they treated or even talked about venereal diseases. So essentially, they were more realistic. They knew that these soldiers were having sex um, overseas, but they had these like prophylactic stations where you could get a penicillin shot. Um, so you could get treated like on the spot. So, um, you know, I thought that that was kind of a positive spin because then you're not losing those mandates, you know. So that was good. Um, and then there were kind of these victory girls, um, you know, to keep the morale up. Um, there were pinup girls we're seeing. So, um, you know, all these, the things that you think of when you think of 1940s America. And of course, you know, there were extramarital affairs. Um, the women who stayed behind were entering the workforce and, you know, they're kind of still living their lives and they're meeting the men who were not drafted. So there's, you know, affairs on both across, you know, both sides of the, the sea. Yeah. But this actually, as we know, um, in pop culture today led to the rise of our baby boomers. <laughs> so um, they, you know, this is when the nuclear family kind of came into play. Um, you know, you came home, you got married to your sweetheart, you st- or, you know, if you were already married, you started a family, you lived into, you moved into your house with the white picket fence and the dog, and that's kind of how this, you know, rise in family started. It was a good time. Um, and kind of... In the 1950s, people were moving out of cities. Um, but then also what's interesting is you have this, uh, you know, the teenagers of this era now have their cars, which is synonymous with this whole freedom that they have to um, have sex in their cars now. You know, They're, they have places to go with their, you know, with their dates. So, I, you know, cars was another major uh, contributor to um, um sex yeah interesting to think about but it makes sense yeah and i'm i do recommend that everybody go watch the history channel series on sex and how sex changed the world it's really cool it's really really cool i don't know where they get some of this like 1920s porn from but i I don't know i have so many questions um but it's really good um (laughs) If you're into that kind of stuff. <laughs> All right. So where are we? Now we're in 1948, obviously, because that's because I'm just so well organized here. So in 1948, you have um, a gentleman named Alfred Kinsey and he publishes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What do you know about no. him? I'm tired oh, of you're just talk. like I know that he's one of the first researchers of sex and obviously the Kinsey scale is still relevant today and if you don't know what the Kinsey scale is I hope you're going to mention it or I can mention it I'm absolutely not going to mention it but I'll tell you what I was going to say and then you can talk about the Kinsey scale I was just going to say that he publishes these reports and one is called the sexual behavior in human men and it basically just called out all the men at the time and said that no one's following these quote-unquote rules um like 69% of men had had sex with prostitutes or had experience with a prostitute. And I want to say 
somewhere between 15 and 30% had had homosexual experiences that they were not reporting to, you know, their, their partner, their, their wives. So, um, very interesting. And I want to interject cause I, I'm, I am familiar with like 1900s, like sexual history stuff. That number that 15 to 30% of men have had I guess we'd call them homosexual experiences. That's higher than it is today, which suggests that culturally there was a shift to suppress that. And it was re- actually more typical. Like a lot of people back then, if they were to label their sexuality, would probably be more uh, bisexual. Whereas like today, it's sort of almost like you have to strictly identify as one or the other. Interesting. Oh, that's cool. Which also with the Kinsey scale makes sense, right? Because he makes a scale for classification of it's like one to six and like one extreme is like only attracted to the opposite sex and the other extreme is only attracted to the same sex. But his theory, he made it fluid. which was like yeah. fact, flat, factual at that time, was that most people were somewhere towards the middle. I want to say he was ahead of his time, but really... He should have been, like, everybody else was behind, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yes, Um, exactly. And then he, not to be outdone, in 1953, he he published the female version to that, and it, you know, showed that a third of women were not virgins at marriage, which I'm sure is, I don't know, I'm going to say underreported, but it's kind of like, you know, the interrater, like, if you know somebody's asking you a question, you, you know... I don't know. Yeah, right. So, I mean, just I, in some the, ways that's promising because the number was probably actually more towards like a half or two thirds. Yeah. If one third were uh, confident with reporting that they weren't virgins at marriage. And, and that could also mean sex, like the classic definition of like penis and vagina sex versus, you know, well, you know, women or and men doing other things to preserve that that definition of virginity. Mm-hmm. So, in 1953, we also have Playboy, um, which, and this is how they described it, made sex like very fun and you know, lo- like luxurious. You had these parties, you had a Playboy mansion, and again, now you're bringing. Playboy magazines into homes um, to k- kind of, you know, a big, I guess Anthony Comstock was probably rolling over in his grave. Um, <laughs> in the 50s, you also have rock music. <laughs> rock music. It's like in my notes, like that's. Well, the culture know, that surrounded it was very, very sexual. Yes. So. Yeah. Elvis the pelvis. Shout out to groupies. So in the 1960s, you have the pill, finally. Um, and by the 70s, 7 million women have or are on the pill. So um, that's, that's good. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, sex before marriage was becoming more common. Um, you have the 70s and the era of free love and drugs and experimentation and kind of getting away from the norms of society at that time. 
But also you have, let's not forget, in the 60s and 70s, you have people in their mid-adult ages who are, you know, practicing key parties um, and swingers. That became, that was a big movement and kind of this non-monogamy. Um, so, uh, you know, this all comes to a head, though, in the early 80s with AIDS. So it kind of just, the, all, it, all of this for the past two decades, um, the parties, the, the drugs and the discos and everything, now you have, you know, for the first time you're seeing safe sex and, you know, we're, we're putting more education out there and uh, practices for safe sex to try to stop the, the spread of AIDS. So that's kind of the end of the 80s. And then the 90s, I have um, a rise in BDSM culture from everything to um, accessories to underground clubs. Um, and I'm sure you, you're like, you can kind of picture a video. I can't think of the one in my head. I want to say it's Madonna, but that's what I thought of when I thought of this recollection of the, of the 90s. Um, and then in ni- 1998, Viagra was invited, invented. Does that seem <laughs> like late to you? No, I, I do think it was recent. 1998, all right. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that was kind of opening our eyes to the fact that our parents and grandparents wanted to have sex, but, you know, now they had some help. So um, <laughs> there's that. And And I just... And here we are today. I don't know why I stopped in the 90s as if like the 2000s isn't and the 2010s isn't also an era. But um, well, you know, we're actually uh, and we're going to do another episode and we're going to actually have a guest on it. And we're going to go more into the past few decades and what's been going on there. And so I think it's okay that you stopped in the 90s. But one thing I want to say is, yeah, is is while, you know, there's a lot of progression that's been made. I think there was a large counterculture in America, especially in like the late and like turn of the century. It was like counterculture. Like obviously we know America is technically, objectively, factually defines itself as like an almost like an evangelical Christian country. And that hugely impacts our uh, culture as you can see by people who get elected, all you have to do is say that you're an evangelical and you have a good chance of getting elected. And so um, one thing I should say is if you don't follow our Instagram, we do have an Instagram. Thank you for this consult. And we just sorted a Discord, which if you want the link, you can DM us on Instagram. We'll give it to you. And a lot of us on the Discord were talking about growing up in purity culture. And a lot of us grew up in various like religious subcultures and there was this yeah there was this book in 1998 that came out by this guy named josh harris and it was called i kiss dating goodbye and like a lot of people my age like millennials our parents read that book and thought it was like the bible and none of us should date and we went to christian schools that had things called true love weights and like forced purity vows on you and God, if like, if you do anything besides like 
ideally you'll save your first kiss for marriage but like if you do anything you know i mean they they literally described like you get told at like your chapels at like your christian schools that if you had sex you were like even once you were like a chewed up piece of gum and no one else would want you and it's it's interesting because you know I didn't like fully believe that but like on some level I was like you know virginity was toted to be like this amazing thing and like you know once you're not a virgin like sex with you is terrible which like literally doesn't even make any sense at all looking back but when you're like telling teenagers this even if they want to reject it it's it is gonna you know leave some sort of like impression on their mind and their understanding of things um so I just wanted to point out that it wasn't like it there there isn't like a straight linear sexual progression being positive there's a lot of different aspects where there's a lot of regression you know um especially if you come from like religious groups that teach things a certain way yeah absolutely um yeah i that is a the the discord um that's going to be such a great you know thing to have because there are so many you know, you, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what another culture, another religion uh, goes through, but also how similar it may be to your own. So I, yeah. I thought that was such an interesting conversation. So now let's talk about <laughs> polygamy. <laughs> so <Woo-hoo. laughs> uh, just to define some words, polygamy means multiple spouses, Polygyny, so polygamy is with the A-M-Y, polygyny, polygyny is if they're wives. Polyamory is multiple partners, relationships with consent. And I have to think that this means consent, both the person that you're engaging in these multiple relationships, and then if you have kind of like your other, if, if you're, if these are extramarital, I have to think that you're, um, actual spouse also is in consent with this. Um, otherwise you have like cheating, obviously. (laughs) So, um, you know, historically this is thought to be, um, gender imbalance, um, more common in men, but it's actually not true at all. Um, there were a lot of, um, practices of one woman with multiple male spouses as well. So, and, I I got some of this information from The Modern and also uh, Elizabeth Elizabeth Sheff. She is a a sociologist, and she is currently writing a book about non-monogamy. So um, it's it's really interesting to learn about, and there's not a ton out there, um, but I got some of it. So the question I, of course... This is cool because I haven't talked really about neurology this entire time, so which is like refreshing to kind of talk about something that I don't talk about every day. But I think I'm gonna kind of tie it back to our first sex episode, um, and kind of the reason that I'm gonna lay out all these facts is so that you can do some mental exercise with yourself. <laughs> did we start out monogamous, or did it evolve, or is monogamy 
strictly a cultural uh, convenience thing or, you know, and I think you and I were talking about how we wanted to delve into it. So we can have like a little debate at the end. So um, some evidence that it may have evolved um, from a non-monogamous society would be the spread of STIs or other diseases. It doesn't have to be sexual diseases. It could be the plague. Um, and availability of, of mates. Again, I talked about this earlier. Now, touching back to the my last um, rant, I mean episode, <laughs> biologically, it does make sense because you, you increase your chances of healthy offspring by increasing the number of partners. And this goes for both males and females because um, you're mixing different genetic... Um, you know, you're mixing different genetic pools and you may, you know, you're giving yourself the chance to kind of have that best match. Um, and, you know, we've been aware of this throughout history um, that this is the case. The Code of Hammurabi actually stated that it was okay to have multiple wives if one could not procreate. And there was something very similar in Islam, Greek, Roman, Japanese cultures and others, I'm sure, um, that kind of set centered around this is for procreation, um, but you know I'm sure it was also very loosely interpreted. <clears throat> um, and then I'm gonna skip a bunch of years to the 1800s because I didn't know this. So in the 1800s, you have this transcendental movement, and you actually see a rise of these communal societies. Um, and one such was in Oneida, New York. And this was, I want to say that they were Shakers, the religion. Am I, is that right? Somebody it who knows sounds, more? It sounds, the Quakers? The, so there were Quakers, but there were also Shakers, I think. Or maybe. Are those, are those like, you know. Let me just explain. Quakers that had seizures? I don't know. <laughs> I think that I always thought it was just kind of like a term of endearment. Like when people are talking about uh, religion, they're talking about Quakers who were notoriously like God fearing, but then you had shakers who were kind of like shaking things up, but it actually could be. Okay. I'm just going to stop talking. However, (laughs) in, in like the 1960s, um, there was this man, his name was John Noyes and he came from, a religious family, um, either Quaker or Shaker. And um, he was kind, he kind of broke away from the church um, and he started his own church. So he, he essentially started this like community, this communal society where they would share work, property, and love. Um, and he had these doctrines. So he, they were actually, they established their, community. It was like this big, beautiful house and all this land um, in Oneida, New York, which is near the border of Canada, in case there was any prosecution. So he, some of his doctrines um, were, one was complex marriage, which means that nobody was married to just one person and everybody was married to everybody else. So there's no exclusivity, but you could co- cohabit with somebody. Um but you had to follow these rules. Um, 
that that seems like okay. I I I get that that would be part of this type of community, the society. Um, and then I think it was his also that there were a bunch of these societies. You your children were just everybody's children, and you couldn't show favoritism. And parents split roles equally. Um, but then and okay, that I could see how that's convenient and whatnot. But then it gets a little a little weird. Um, so there was this concept of male continence, and this was essentially that you males could not reach orgasm. They could not ejaculate um, at all. So this resulted in 40 children uh, being born. So obviously it did not work. Um, now I'm sure you're, you're wondering, hey, wait a second, you know, that seems like it would take a lot of practice. Who taught these men this um, torture? And they were taught by, there's the principle of ascending fellowship, which incorporates, is a way to incorporate virgins into this, um, into this mix. And essentially, if you were a menopausal woman who could not bear children, it was your role to teach the young male versions how to practice male continence and so he wanted their cult to like die off no you could have children but like it had to be a planned thing this is just for the i guess the recreational sex because 40 children is a lot but that's the unintended children i think i no, I think he just was, that's his way of population control, because as you can imagine, eugenics played into this, as well as incest. Oh, okay. Well, you know, he could have just taught them the pull-out method. Yeah, I think, I don't, I don't know, I think they really just could not ejaculate at all. Like, I don't even think it was, like, Maybe the they thought method. sperm floated through the air and, like, impregnated people. I think for this purpose, anything is probably... What they thought, it, it, um, yeah, you can go visit this house. I think it's still in upstate New York. Um, and there, I got this from nyhistory.com, an essay by Randall Hildebrand. Very interesting. I didn't know this at all. Because I, I thought, it was like, I didn't realize that this was happening all over. I kind of thought that this happened in Utah, Nevada. Um, <laughs> that was very um, ignorant of me. So, so some other waves of this, as uh, Elizabeth Chef calls them, um, you have your Mormon fundamentalists about the same time. I want to say this was pretty much contemporary. Um, and their church eventually did denounce um, plural marriages, but it still exists. Um, and I, um, I watch Sister Wives. Um, I love I've Sister Wives. I've watched it too. And it's still on. Um, and there, the legal loophole to this is, again, they're still kind of being prosecuted and people, you know, they're having to move and, you know, there's the risk of legal penalties. But the loophole is that you could have a legal spouse, uh, but then also multiple religious partnerships that the law does not recognize. Um, so, of course, there's a lot of like financial things that go into this as well, but um, that's how this kind of different religions get around this. Um, some 
other uh, really interesting societies that popped up were, um, it's actually like a religion, but a little bit more culty than uh, in Oneida, New York, is called uh, Carista. So this was um, established by a um, man named Brother Judd, and he had, it was in New York City in San Francisco, and it was kind of this counterculture um, establishment for people who were kind of like, quote unquote, societal dropouts. But these were actually educated middle class kids. Like these weren't, you know, he wasn't, I mean, these were people that had futures and instead they kind of got into um, a lot of drug experimentation Um kind of these return to nature, focus on spirituality, and it's kind of a spectrum, celibacy or free love. So they kind of had this whole spectrum. Um, And there was a lot of uh, not so cool stuff, obviously, that went on with that as well. Um, And basically in Topanga, Canada, and also in Seattle, you can find neighborhoods of these poly families um, they share health care. Uh, I'm sorry, they share the child's care. Some date others outside of their family. Um, so there are little kind of neighborhoods and societies because it's thought that four to five percent of Americans practice um, consensual, ethical uh, non-monogamy. So it, it is common. Uh, it's a lot more common than we would think. But I think I want to make sure that people know that this isn't just this isn't cheating. This is like consensual, ethical, open relationships, non-monogamy. So that leads me to the question, is monogamy right for humans? Um, so I thought, I thought in my mind for our species, a benefit could be that care could be divided among, um, larger groups of adults uh there could be siblings and um i could see especially if there's homeschooling and and things like that um but another con i could see would be jealousy and i was reading that everything i read about uh poly uh relationships where communication is like the biggest thing and they're you know very open and you know the feelings are always out on the table essentially so uh, anyone have any thoughts? Well, I have some thoughts. Um, you know, if we were to look at this from like a psychological perspective, the thought is that uh, if that polyamory and anything that falls in those, I'm just going to say polyamory because polygamy or whatever could be forced upon people. So that's like, so let's talk about if it's consensual. Um, It's thought that that is associated with like avoidant attachment styles and it's people who are not capable of like um, appropriate romantic attachments. So they are avoidant and they find a way to uh, just make things sexual. That's a simplistic version of it. I could expand on it, but that is the psychological perspective. Yeah. Um, like, but like culturally, you know, it's, I mean, the cults that have the polygamy stuff always fail. 
It's always like some psycho who just wants to have sex with everyone at the head of it. And then like right now there's a huge push for polyamory culturally, which, you know, it might be the right choice for someone. If someone is going to cheat and they're going to be like a cheater for life, then polyamory is the correct choice for them. But does it mean that that person is like psychologically integrated right from a psychological perspective no because they're separating you know uh attachment and and sex and from a psychological perspective those things are supposed to be integrated very interesting um yeah i mean i it was almost like very eye-opening to learn about this because you know Again, like you you were saying about being in school and learning about virginity, it was always like, well, I thought this like there was this was the only answer, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I'm not gonna go out, you know, and, and find another husband tomorrow. I just, <laughs> I, I, I could see it. Kind of was very eye opening. Like I, oh, I could definitely see how you know this this could work and and I and I, that's a good point what you said about yeah. how you can salvage a relationship that otherwise you know and like psychology doesn't promote like you know only one sexual partner your whole life or anything right. like the psychological theories just promote like secure attachment and generally it's believed that monogamy is part of secure attachment but that you know you can have numerous monogamous securely attached relationships throughout your life so that's you know another thing to keep in mind uh you know this isn't purity culture over here (laughs) um and i just wanted to just shout out two more sources um slate.com making love and trouble was a good article and um Getting into the bio, the biology of it, I, I didn't want to go too much step on the foot of the other episode, but Frontiers in, Eco- in Ecology and Evolution, um, there's a great um, piece by Hope Klug about different species and kind of how this is weighed and balanced. Okay. Oh, awesome. Well, thank, thank you, you for, for this consult. consult.